Hello and welcome to the podcast Spacetime Fika. This is a new podcast about physics and astronomy created by me, Jonas Enander. I have a PhD in physics and I currently work as a science communicator in Stockholm, Sweden. And Sweden is also my home country, which is reflected in the name Spacetime Fika. The first word, spacetime, stems from Einstein's theory of relativity. Whereas the second word, fika, is a Swedish word about a very central activity in Sweden, namely to have a social coffee break, a fika, together. And the goal of this podcast is to meet people from the world of science and discuss in an informal way, like having a fika, a coffee break, what we know about the universe and how we have figured that out. In the first episode, we meet Salvatore Vitale, in his office at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT. Salvatore is associate professor of physics and a key member of LIGO, an observatory that searches for signals from colliding black holes and neutron stars. This is known as gravitational wave astronomy, and is a field that is growing rapidly today, giving us new insights into not only black holes and neutron stars, but also things like the expansion of the universe. Salvatore is the perfect person to tell us about this exciting science, and we recorded this episode last year, right before LIGO started its fourth observation run. So, without further delay, here's the first episode of Spacetime Fika. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, welcome to this episode, Salvatore Vitale. So uh, we are going to talk about one of the most exciting science experiments um, I think has ever been made, (laughs) which is to hunt for the gravitational waves emitted from merging black holes and neutron stars. So welcome to this episode. Thank you. And we will talk about the history of this uh, discovery, which was awarded with the Nobel Prize in 2017. And we will also talk about the current state of knowledge, what have we learned from uh, the experiments that have been made. And we will also talk about the future a bit, what uh, what is on the horizon in terms of the study of black holes. But uh, we're going to start to talk about you first and how you got started in this very exciting field. So can you tell a little bit about uh, your background and how you got into physics? Yeah, so I, um, I always liked science and physics since when I was a kid pretty much. And um, so I did my undergrad in in Italy in physics, naturally, and then uh, um, always like theoretical physics more than uh, experimental one. And anyhow, anyhow, so for my um, uh, PhD, th- eventually I went to to Paris and uh, did some work on uh, on relativity and gravity, but it was really purely on the theoretical side for the first. Uh, 18 months, something like this. And then uh, just randomly, accidentally, at a conference that my thesis advisor was uh, co-organizing in Paris. And as a student, of course, I helped, you know, giving people their badges, you know, telling them where to go. I just saw this 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 person that, you know, was trying to connect his internet to the Wi-Fi and tried to help. I failed, by the way. Yeah, so but we started chatting, and it turns out that this 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 uh, person was a, a professor of physics in uh, in Arizona, 
working on LIGO. And, uh, and so I was, you know, chatting and talking about the common interest. It was kind enough to tell me that he had actually some funding that he could use. So he asked me if I wanted to, if I was interested in spending a couple of months in Arizona to work on, on LIGO uh, related like uh, research topics. And then I said, of course, I've never been to the US, you know, sounds great. And so that's how really I, I, I my you know, research shifted from like generic theory of, of gravity to more gravi of gravitational wave science. And then from there I wait, went- Wait, wait, hold on. So yeah. that shift happened, which in the end led you to, I mean, your entire career because you were trying to help this professor. Totally, totally. <laughs> so I, I, I owe a lot of what I'm doing to Ubuntu not being able to connect to the Wi-Fi, you know, <laughs> Linux, you know, uh, 10 and, and some years ago. Absolutely. You know, sometimes life is, is like this. There are, you know, random events that move you in a different direction. And um, anyhow, and so uh, this was, uh, so I finished my PhD in 2010. Then I did a postdoc for two years in Amsterdam, still like on gravitational wave research. So I shifted more and more from uh, pure theory to analysis of the data, pretty much. And then I came uh, to MIT in 2012, uh, first as a, as a postdoc uh, you know, uh, researcher, and then for like one short year as a research scientist, and then as professor in 17. Yeah, um, we are sitting here in your office at MIT right now, and I see on a wall here, you have a photo. It says, uh, it's a group of people. You're one of the group and one of the members in this group. And it says, Stockholm, December 9th, 2017. Can you describe to the listeners, what are we seeing on this photo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. so uh, as you mentioned, gravitational waves have been one of the probably most impactful um, new lines of research over the last few years and uh, uh, as part of uh, of that our first uh, um, discovery in 2015 was awarded the the, the nobel prize of, of for physics to uh, ray weiss uh, kip thorne and barry berish who are among the three people the people who, like really started the field in in the 70s in particular uh, ray weiss here at mit um, you know was one of the pioneering figures right and so uh, ray was kind enough to uh, reinvest some of the money of the prize to invite uh, a few people here at MIT and outside of MIT to, to go to Stockholm. And so that's when that picture was, uh, was taken. This was uh, basically the night before, if I remember, the actual ceremony with the, with the king. We did not get to go to that one because even Nobel laureates have very few tickets. So once you give it to family, the president of MIT, whatever, there are not very many left. And, uh, but, you know, so we had our own party even that day. But the, the night before, so we had our party with the Nobel laureates and there you see the president of MIT and uh, Nervis, Nergis Mavalvala, who is now the Dean of Science of MIT and she's a LIGO, uh, you know, faculty and, and other uh, faculty research scientists here at MIT. So it was... Uh, it was, it was great. It was pretty great. <laughs> Fantastic. So we are going to go through now what actually happened that led to this Nobel Prize. I mean, the, the actual science behind it. But before we do that, I just want to ask, since I'm from Stockholm, what did you think about Stockholm? <laughs> so I, 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 I love the place and I, I love the food too. Like, oh, really? You know, yeah, yeah. I, like, I, I ate a huge amount of, of salmon for like from breakfast on and uh, uh, no, I don't eat fish anymore, uh, but back then I did and it was, it was great. I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed the city. I was, uh, it's really a beautiful city. I only spent like, you know, uh, three days or something like this, so no huge amount of, of time. 
and uh, I went, of course, to the, the Nobel Museum, and uh, I cannot remember the name, forgive me, but you will know. I went to the museum where they have a, a massive uh, Viking boat, pretty much. Yeah, the Vasa Museum. Yeah, yeah. And it was beautiful too. Yeah. So it was, it was really enjoyable uh, yeah. time and visit. I've never been to that Vasa Museum. Okay, <laughs> uh, you, you should, then you should. It's really okay, great. I'll take your advice. <laughs> okay, three days in Stockholm eating copious amounts of salmon. It sounds yeah. great. Uh, okay, but let's let's go back now a little bit to um, the topic of today's talk, which are merging black holes and gravitational waves. So we're going to start with gravitational waves. So what can you describe? What what are they? Right. So the way I, I think about it, it's um, uh, it's not too dissimilar from uh, electromagnetic waves, which are light, right? Which of course we experience daily in our life. Uh, continuously. And so the same way if you take an electric charge and, and you shake it, it's going to emit light or X-ray or gamma ray, depending on the frequency. If you take a, a mass and you shake it, it will emit also waves. And those are called gravitational waves, right? The, uh, the main difference, as probably we're going to discuss later, is that it's much harder to produce gravitational waves. So while I can produce electromagnetic waves just in my office with a radio, right, uh, or an emitter or a microphone, uh, to produce a significant uh, uh, quantity of gravitational waves, I would need an incredible, a lar incredibly large amount of mass in a small volume, so something very dense. That is the main difference. But everything else is the same. They are produced when you accelerate something, either mass or charge, and then they just travel at the speed of light. And, uh, you know, if you know how, you can reveal their presence and try to learn something about the source. Mm. And But when we talk about electromagnetic waves, those are, well, as the name suggests, waves in an electromagnetic field. So, and usually when we think about waves, let's say ocean waves, those are waves in the water, but what are gravitational waves actually waves of? <laughs> that is the, you know, it's a fantastic question, even from an historical perspective. So the gravitational waves are, are waves that propagate in the fabric of space-time. So what is wiggling is actually space-time itself, right? Which of course is not incredibly easy to uh, visualize, right? But uh, the probably the most um, common way of thinking about it is that you can think of space-time as a, you know, a flat surface, like, you know, the surface of, of your bed, when you're not in bed, right, it's just flat and there is nothing there. And then if you put a bowling ball, it will make like a big dip, right? And that would be a static thing. If you just put a bowling ball in your bed or a cat, there will be a small, you know, dent in the bed, but it doesn't move, it just stays there. So gravitational waves are kind of the same thing, but now the, uh, um, the disturbance relative to the flat surface is not localized and constant and always the same like a bowling ball, but it's like if you're jumping in bed and then you're making these waves basically going uh, away from where you're jumping. And uh, I think that's the best way I can really uh, explain because you know then we get in the realm of relativity, which is not incredibly trivial to, to visualize, but really because we are all embedded in space-time, what is really happening if you are introducing perturbation in space-times, which is what gravitational waves are doing really, is that you are modifying the distance between objects embedded in space-time. Mm. And 
it's easy maybe to imagine the space aspect in the way you describe it with a sheet that is changing. Yeah. But the time aspect, so so there's a wave in time as well. Yeah. So um, I think that is a bit harder to to visualize, and uh, it leads to it's a source of confusion historically, right? So I think uh, probably for the purposes, especially of explaining uh, how LIGO works, uh, it is best to focus on the on the space aspect because that's also how LIGO measure things, right? You try to measure the distance between two objects and see if it changes. But yes, it is, you're right, like relativity and general relativity treats space and times simultaneously such that if you uh, uh, perturb space-time, you are also affecting time. Then, of course, it's not necessarily a perturbation at the same level of magnitude. One may be bigger than the other, but formally you are affecting both space and time, yes. Mm. And that, that really is one of the aspects, as you say, that's kind of hard to wrap the head around and also shows why it probably took a long time to figure out exactly how this works. So as you said then that there's one aspect is the detection of these gravitational waves and the other one is the creation of these gravitational waves. So before we move into the detection aspect which is I mean super fascinating how it's even possible to detect them. Uh, let's talk a bit about how they are created first and then we'll see how they are detected. So because you said you need a huge amount of mass compressed in a very small region of space and then mm -hmm. I start to think about that sounds like a black hole. <laughs> it, it does smell like a black hole, right? And in fact it is it's a black hole. So uh, let's let's see. So first of all, the main reason why, you know, if I just move my, my hands and not producing gravitational waves a LIGO or, or the detectors or Virgo can detect. Yeah. And for the listeners, Salvatore is moving his hand oh, very, yeah. very rapidly Sorry. right now. <laughs> uh, it's because uh, so as I said uh, Gravitational waves are perturbation in the fabric of space-time, but it turns out that space-time is very stiff, you know? So it's not like one of these nice uh, water mattresses that they just, you know, are very soft and you lie down and you very easily sink in. They are like a very, very hard, you know, uh, old mattress from your grandparents, right? Made in wood or something very hard, right? And so what that means is that it really takes a lot to, you know, to bother it, right? And so, of course, I'm making a, you know, a complicated mathematical story very simple, but what that means is that you really need to put a lot of stuff in a small volume, okay? And now, if we think about what are the known objects in the universe that fit that description of a lot of mass in a small volumes, then we are thinking about the densest object in the universe. And those would be uh, white dwarfs, uh, or neutron stars or black holes and all of these are the end product of the life of stars after they go supernovae, right? And those are exactly, at least neutron stars and black holes, not white dwarfs, the type of sources that uh, LIGO and Virgo have seen up to date. And so I should also say that to produce gravitational waves you need motion and in particular you need acceleration. So if I just take a black hole and it sits somewhere by itself, it no, it's not going to produce gravitational waves. It needs to be accelerating and, uh, for example, in a binary system with another uh, black hole or neutron stars. And, uh, and again, I, I'll stop here because probably we're going to talk more about that specifically, but these are exactly the type of sources we're seeing right now. Right. So you say that there's not enough to have just one black hole. Yeah. So we need uh, two, for example. Yes. So can you explain 
what happens then when two black holes meet and emit these gravitational waves? Right, absolutely. So um, what happens is the following. Um, this, the type of system we have on mind, first, for simplicity, is uh, like a binary, you know, like the moon and the earth, but both of these objects are black holes, right? So they are rotating around the common center of mass. Now, as they... Um, move uh, along around one another they emit gravitational waves but gravitational waves are bringing energy away from the system right they're removing energy right just like light warms your skin right because it's carrying energy gravitational waves also carry energy but if you're removing energy from the system in relativity it turns out that the two objects have to get a bit closer but that's a runaway process because closer means that you're emitting even more gravitational waves. So what is happening is that a bit at the time, these two black holes are going to get closer and closer and closer as they are emitting more and more gravitational waves. And you guess it, eventually they will just you know, smash against one another half of the speed of light or something like that. Yeah, it's amazing. And that's when you emit these copious amounts of gravitational waves that we are hoping to detect here on Earth. Right. And have detected. Right, we have. So I should yeah. say also, uh, just for clarity, gravitational waves are emitted throughout this whole process, not just in the last few seconds. What changes is uh, the energy, how much energy you have in a specific amount of time, so the power, and uh, at which frequency the emission happen. Because when the two objects are still at the beginning, so rather far, these gravitational waves are the frequency where LIGO and Virgo cannot see them. They're just too low frequency. And it's really in the last few hundreds or thousands of orbits that they are at the speed of a kitchen blender, pretty much. So a few hundred times uh, rotation per second. That's the sweet spot for the detectors we have today. A kitchen blender. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> kitchen <laughs> blender, yeah. Okay, so then let's uh, move back. Uh, we're going to return to this question of what happens when they collide and so on, because there was some very interesting detections being made there. But let's uh, go back to Earth now and see how we actually can detect this, because it just, as you say, the the effect of this to disturb space-time is very, very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when the waves come here, they are in, in, induce a very, very small perturbation here on Earth. So what is required to measure them? Right. Okay, so let's go in uh, in order, which uh, I'm going to spend maybe some time on this because I think it's one of the most fascinating, really, part of, uh, of the history of relativity, is that at the beginning, meaning for the first few decades after Einstein proposed relativity, and he figured out that gravitational waves were a consequence of, of his theory, it was not even obvious whether it was a real thing that you would ever see versus a fluke of the math. And the reason why I say this is because it's a bit technical, so feel free to cut this later. Uh, you know, it turns out that you can describe Einstein relativity in any system of coordinates that you want, but somehow things look slightly different. So there are things that are always the same, and those are the physics. But the description of the physics depends a bit, right? For example, earlier we talked about is only space or both space and time affected by gravitational wave or gravity, right? The answer to that depends on which coordinate you use, right? And um, anyhow, long story short, it took, it took actually people uh, decades until the uh, 70s, if I'm not wrong, to finally convince themselves that gravitational waves were not something that you can just cancel by changing coordinates, but they have to 
they have a physical effect, right? And what the physical effect is, is that if you have in a region of space-time, like my office here, two masses which are, uh, you know, falling under gravity, in this case, by falling, we really mean suspended like pendulum, okay? Uh, suppose they are uh, initially some distance, like a meter, whatever. Uh, if a gravitational wave passes by, what it does to space, in the coordinates I'm using, is that it stretches space in one direction and squeezes space in the orthogonal direction. So what, does, uh, what the distance between these two mirrors or these two masses would do as gravitational wave passes by is to change in a particular way that Einstein taught us how to calculate, you know, hundred and some years ago. So theoretically, what you have to do if you want to like you know, collect your Nobel Prize, it's very, very simple. You just have to monitor the distance between two objects here at Earth very precisely and show that it changes in a way that is uh, predicted by Einstein. Now, what is the catch? The catch is that the amount by which they move is offensively small. Like, uh, maybe we're going to talk uh, uh, more about LIGO later, specifically, or Virgo, but just to give you an idea, if you place these two objects that you're monitoring the distance of uh, four kilometers one from the other, a typical gravitational waves like the ones we are seeing today would change the distance between these two objects four kilometers apart by less than the size of a proton or one nucleus which is, of course, is like... It's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy, right? And that's why it took, you know, many decades. And that's one of the reasons why a Nobel Prize was awarded is because he's not only a scientific, but he's also a, an incredible technological challenge to make a measurement which is this precise. Yeah, and uh, what I find really fascinating about this is what you just said was that it first took several decades just to figure out the mathematics I mean, that's almost 50, 60 years yes. after Einstein formulated general relativity. And then it took another 40, 50 years to actually make the measurement and detect yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Ray, Ray Weiss had the idea, among others, to use lasers originally in the 60s slash 70s. So it's a long time ago. Most of the intervening time went into you know, being sure of the source of noise were under control and, the, you know, you could build them masses and for masses we use mirrors which are polished enough, you know, and that you can uh, remove the source of other things that can make your masses move, right? Right now you and I are talking and even though we don't notice it, we are ever so slightly shaking just because everything shakes around us, right? Because of, you know, the earth is shaking a bit. And for us, it's not a problem. But if you are trying to measure the distance between two objects to the size of an atom or less, then every small amount that these things move for reasons which are not astrophysical, then it, that matters, right? You need to better be sure that you understand all of these things and you can remove as many of them as possible. And that's incredibly challenging. Yeah, so, so let's talk about this. So, okay, so suppose you say then that we need uh, two masses, we need to monitor the distance, how it changes between them, because since gravitational, uh, gravitational wave is a space-time disturbance, then uh, distances will change, and that's what mm -hmm. we need to figure out how they change. 
So how do you go about then in practice? Because you mentioned lasers, suspended mirrors. Uh, we have two sites. Let's talk about LIGO now. And Absolutely. Begin with, yes, what, what does LIGO mean? Let's right. Okay. So uh, LIGO is, as I should say, there are right now four operating detectors in the world uh, of kilometers or larger. There is the two LIGOs in the US, and LIGO stands for Laser Interferometry Gravitational Observatory. Then there is Virgo in Italy and uh, Kagra in Japan. And um, so the way they work, it's really pretty simple conceptually, right? If you want to measure the distance, say, between you and uh, an object, these days it's very easy to go on Amazon and buy a laser gun that basically sends some light to the object. The light bounces back to the, the gun and you measure how long it took, pretty much and you divide by two, you know, do some mathematics and you get the distance. And so that's exactly the idea when you really boil it down to the very minimum of gravitational wave observatories. You just measure the distance between two pairs of mirrors arranged to form an L letter. And the way you measure the distance is to send a, a, a laser beam, right? And uh, uh, basically just count how long it takes for light to go in the two directions, okay? I'm, I'm making it very, very simple. Of course, it's much more complicated than this. And so what you can do then is say, okay, I can build my detector such that when there are no gravitational waves, say the travel time of the laser in the two perpendicular direction is, say, identical, right? But now as gravitational wave passes by, the horizontal distance will change in a different way than the vertical distance, so I will have a, a differential change. And that's exactly one of the great things that lasers are, are good at doing, is to measure small variation in the path that light follows across different uh, uh, directions. So that's the working principle of, uh, of, uh, of uh, LIGO. Now, as an historical pretty entertaining fact, this way of measuring things is called interferometry because light interferes. And it's particularly, I think, uh, uh, you know, interesting and, and fun that the idea of interferometry was actually introduced in the second part of the 1800 by, among others, by Michelson and Murray, which used it to uh, try to explain if and how the speed of light would depend on, on which reference frame, and they failed, they actually uh, won a Nobel Prize. And uh, that is what eventually led to Einstein's original uh, special relativity and then to general relativity. So I, I find this particularly nice that there is this loop that we are using the same idea that they used 150 years ago to you know, pioneering what eventually will lead to, lead to actually understanding how light and gravity work. Yeah, definitely. And we also have the interferometric uh, experiments done by the Event Horizon Telescope with very long bands. Of course. So interferometry is really there at the heart of uh, this black hole research. Uh, I use that very often when I teach relativity to my student, when I, I go to the Michael Samore, because I told them, like, this literally was a failed experiment. They did this to show that the speed of light changes and they found that it doesn't change. So, like, you know, by the look of it, they, they failed, right? But I think some people call this the most successful failed experiment in the history of physics because <laughs> by doing so, they actually yeah. know, found something more important. It's very fascinating. But but LIGO uh, didn't fail. Uh, it was possible to see the change in uh, the distance between these L-shaped uh, lengths. 
but as we mentioned before, it required really good knowledge of all the types of changes that are also int introduced by effects here on Earth. So, and that's something I find really fascinating. It's also the same with Event Horizon Telescope experiments. They need to have really good control of where the telescopes are placed on Earth. So they need to know like continental drift and so on to do these experiments. Can you just mention again some of the difficulties? Absolutely, and that also reminds me, I didn't answer the second part of your question, why we have more than one LIGO or Virgo. Right, so, um, Turns out that there are a lot of things that wiggle around us, right? And they make a source of noise. And so uh, for us to be sure that what we saw comes from the sky as opposed to something else, of course, we need to make a convincing case that is not due to the FedEx track, right? That just went into the bumper a bit too fast, you know, or something like that. And so some of the sources of noise are just always there, like seismic noise, okay? Just because the the earth vibrates a bit at uh, low frequency, right? Some, which are also also always there, are due to quantum mechanics. Say, you know, we use laser to, me to do this measurement, as I mentioned, and quantum mechanics tells us that we can think of lasers as being made of a lot of uh, particles called photons, but it also tells us that we cannot know exactly the number of photons in the, in the beam. That's just Eisenberg uncertainty pretty much and so that uncertainty is a source of noise that we also have and those are always there and we know how to calculate them then on top of that there are transient source of noise like the example i made is you know another random example if you have a car these things are so sensitive that if you have a car or an airplane you know flying above just the vibration in the air introduced or in or in the surface in the ground will give you a measurable effect i think a famous history, uh, I think in Lago Enford, so you can ask when you go there, of a, a mysterious source of noise that they were seeing at some point was due to a microwave. That was a microwave, a microwave that was somehow <laughs> like producing glitches in the power outlet. And those, because everything shares the power, right? <laughs> were somehow like converted into the gravitational wave detectors. So, you know, really these things happen. And that's one of the reasons why it's paramount, especially for the first discovery, to have more than one of these machines, right? Because now what is the key? If I have, uh, you know, my power out there going bad because of the microwave, it's very unlikely that that will happen at the same time in Washington state and in Louisiana and in Europe, say, right? While if you have a real gravitational waves coming from the sky, you should see it in all of the detectors which are part of your network in the same way, right? So the power maybe is more or less different depending on the position of the sky, but the shape should be like the same. You should see the same thing, right? So that's one of the reasons why we're having a network as opposed to a single detector is really to convince ourselves that what we see is astrophysical. The other very important uh, reason, and we're gonna talk about this later, I, I think, since it's very exciting, is that a single uh, detector at the time, one of these interferometers, cannot really tell you where in the sky the gravitational waves came from, uh, or very poorly. So you need to have two to start learning something, or ideally three detectors, you know, far apart from one another. And then you do basically uh, time triangulation. It's like our ears work, right? And so that's one of the uh, main reasons to have uh, more than just one side is to be able to tell our friends who own telescopes, hey, look there because mm -hmm. a gravitational wave just came from air. So you should really look that there is also going to be some light maybe coming from there.
So let's dive now into the science that has been produced by these amazing experiments. So the first detection was in 2015 then with LIGO, and that was presented then to the general public in 2016, and the Nobel Prize was awarded immediately the next year because it was such a huge discovery. So that was one detection. And then there were upgrades, and uh, we are sitting here now because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, next week I will go to LIGO Hanford. This is a trip I'm doing in the U.S., and they will start the fourth observation run, where observation run is the up, I mean, major upgrades that has happened. So can we talk a bit now about going from the first detection to the situation today? What, How many detections have you made, and what have you learned? Absolutely. All right, so uh, as you said, the first uh, the gravitational wave hits us here on Earth the, on, on, on September of 2015. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of fond memory and stories that I can share later if you're if you curious. And, and that, of course, was you know, a, a, an incredible moment. You also mentioned that the actual publication happened in February of 2016, so it's many months after. Now, most of that time, actually did not go into analyzing the data because really, um, you know, we had the tools. Uh, of course, we improved some things during that time, but more or less like a few hours after that happened, I could have told you what was the mass of the two black holes and so on and so forth. Uh, most of the time really went into convincing ourselves that what we saw was real, right? Because as you can imagine, you know, we were well aware of the impact for for science right of that particular claim and uh, and it was incredibly loud and clear it was like suspiciously good right and so we wanted really to check that there was nothing else going on and that took a lot of time right and uh, i heard i have heard uh, mentions that someone maybe injected a fake signal or yes <laughs> so that's that's one of the reason basically what uh, what uh, happened is that in the initial version of LIGO that ran until 2010 and, and Virgo too, um, we had a system to perform what we call hardware injection, which basically means that uh, instead of waiting for a gravitational wave from the sky to move our mirrors a bit, uh, you know, we poke the mirrors, not with our hands, we use like uh, coils. And the reason is that you can basically that way mimic a gravitational wave and you can check that your algorithms work the way they're supposed to work. Basically, you see if you can find it, right? It's a way of testing your codes. But And that's fine. But where it starts getting a bit more exciting is that in the past, before 2010, we also had the, the mechanism and the prerogative of doing that wiggle ourselves without telling anyone. So the only people who know are basically the directors of the, the directors of the three uh, sites, LIGO and Virgo. That was called a, a blind injection because we didn't know. And and one of these happened in 2010. It's called the Big Dog because the source was on the Big Dog constellation of the sky, and we found it. Whatever. And so, of course, you know, on uh, on September of 2015, when we saw this like incredibly loud signal. I mean, I can tell you, uh, you can cut this later if you want. So I was in, in Italy just visiting my family and um, just because of time zone and, and, uh, and my expertise, I was actually one of the first people who could like analyze the, the source characterization code. And, and this thing was like so screaming loud. And I clearly remember, uh, you know, an hour later, it was in the morning in Europe, my friends in the UK starts waking up. And I remember like commenting with them on, on Skype saying like, 
they really could have put some more effort in making it look more real. That is so obviously like fake, right? So loud, <laughs> right? They really didn't try very hard. And then a few hours later, people in the US started waking up and said, no, we have not done this, at least not intentionally, right? So a lot of the time later, uh, the last few weeks and months, were spent into checking that, you know, maybe the, the, the system didn't trigger unwillingly or someone made a mistake uh, or, or whatever, right? A bug, you never know. And uh, uh, I mean, we can go into the really incredibly detailed level of testing that was done and eventually exclude everything. To give you an idea of how paranoid we have been, we even considered the possibility of a malicious attack of someone like in purpose doing this to, for some reason, right? And I think the conclusion was, uh, someone said this in, in, uh, in one of our calls, uh, I'm, I'm quoting something along the line of, if someone really has done this, we should hire them because you know they're better than us, we cannot do it, right? And so it was really, uh, you know, uh, an extreme level of vetting, again, because the stakes were very important. Now, that was the first one. Of course, it was exciting. But now if you ask me and many others in, uh, in, in the world, in the collaboration, you know, to me, that is the beginning, right? That's switching the light from off to on, right? I've seen it. Now what? Okay, and we're going to talk about that later. But before we go there, so let me just mention that in the years following 2015, we have detected way more uh, events and of different types. Right now, um, we have, depending on how you count, so how conservative you want to be in, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's astrophysical or it could be possibly be something else. The ones that we're basically 100% sure they are astrophysical, they are 69 uh, binary black holes, so one black hole banging with another black hole merging together. And uh, uh, then we have two neutron stars with another neutron stars, which we are very sure, and uh, two mergers of a neutron star with a black hole, so heterogeneous systems. And then we have a few more, and that's why the exact numbers changes a bit, depending on what you're reading, that are a bit more marginal. So they may be real, but we're not that sure. Yeah, so so let's talk about that because you can really start to do some demographics now of this black hole population. Absolutely. And as you mentioned in the beginning, what uh, you are dealing with here are ma uh, black holes that are formed from, or maybe are formed, we should say, uh, from the collapse of stars. You mentioned neutron stars, white dwarfs, and so on. But when you start to map out uh, the masses of these black holes, uh, what what do you see? What what's your conclusion? And could could you just tell also before that what when you get the signal, what what is the physics you can extract from this signal? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, Th those are all, all fantastic questions. So let's start from the end. So gravitational waves do encode. Uh, the properties of the sources that they have produced. I mean, it's just written there. It may be very hard to read, but it's, it's somewhere in those wiggles, right? And now the main things we can uh, hope to extract from the data, if we are thinking about two, uh, say, objects like neutron stars and black hole colliding together, are the masses of those two objects. Like how typically we quote them in units of the mass of our sun. So like 10 solar masses, five solar masses, something like that. And then um, 
the angular momentum, like the Earth and the Sun rotates around their own axis, black holes and neutron stars are expected to do the same thing, right? And then also uh, other properties of the binary, such as where is in the sky, what is the distance from us, uh, how is the orbital uh, plane oriented relative to us, uh, when did it emerge, and, and so on and so forth, right? So these things are all written then. Now, the fact that they are all encoded does not mean that they are all equally easy, to extract. For example, it's much easier for us to measure the uh, masses of the two compact uh, objects, like black hole and neutron stars, rather than the angular momentum. It's just because it's, it's physically uh, easier to read from the data. And so then going back to what we have learned, it, it's maybe not surprising that one probably of the most important things that we have learned is about the masses of these black holes, just because we're better at measuring them. Now, before I tell you what we have learned, let me tell you, because it's going to be relevant, what we knew before LIGO and Virgo, because the truth is that astronomers have observed black holes for the last few decades, right? Using uh, radio telescopes and X-ray uh, telescopes, right? And uh, we photons, so with light, we have learned that black holes exist, first of all, which was not always obvious, right? And we have learned that there are black holes of masses from uh, in our galaxy from around, uh, you know, 7, 8, 10 times the mass of our sun to maybe 20, something like that, somewhere in that range. Okay. And, and yes, and now we are excluding the supermassive black holes. Yes, of and course. So yes. Then, and then, and that's an important point. And then what astronomers have found is that somehow, surprisingly, there seemed to be a big gap after 20 solar masses, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then you restart having black holes again at around a million solar masses and you go up to a billion solar masses. Those are the black holes at the center of the galaxy. And in fact, it's one of the open questions of astrophysics. Is there anything in between? If not, you know, why? Do we understand it well? And so what I tell you then uh, makes it, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, clear that it was a big surprise when LIGO, comes online, first discovery of gravitational waves, two black holes, they are both roughly 30 solar masses, which is much heavier than what astronomers have found uh, before. And now, fast forward in 2023, we have, as I mentioned, 69 binary black holes. So we have measured their mass distribution, and we have found that is not uh, like uniform, is not equally likely to find black holes at any given mass. It's easiest uh, to apparently find black holes in binaries at roughly 10 solar masses. And then as you increase the mass, you find fewer and fewer. So if you think of a line that tells you how many you have, it is very big at 10 solar masses. When Then as you increase the mass, it goes low and low and low until you reach 30 solar masses. And then somehow there is a, a bump at 30 solar masses. It goes up again a bit. And then it keeps going down and it tapers off at around, uh, you know, uh, 60, 70. It's, a, it's very uncertain at, at that level. And so uh, what that teaches us is a few things. Some that makes a lot of sense and are very easy to explain. For example, why it's it easier to have some lighter black hole than very heavy black hole? Well, that is probably because if black holes come from stars, it makes sense because stars are also much more numerous when they're light than when they're heavy, right? And, and so if black holes come from, from stars, 
and there are fewer very massive stars, then there should also be fewer very massive black holes. Reasonable, it makes sense, right? The things that are still, uh, you know, worth uh, investigating that are uh, an uh, object of intense research are a few. I mentioned this bump at 30 solar masses. We currently do not know for sure what that is uh, due to, right? There are theories, there are uh, many theories, but there is not an agreed upon answer. So it's something that over the next few years, as we get to measure this feature better and better with more uh, sources, will not be more. The other one is exactly where does that curve goes to zero? Like as at 80, 70, 90, 100, or they just get very rare, but they're still there. We just don't have enough detection yet to know. And that's an important question though, because one of the most important, probably open problems of uh, uh, astrophysics is that nobody is sure how the supermassive black holes at the center of the uh, galaxies formed very, very early in the history of the universe. Um, one of the theories that maybe they form by merging smaller black holes over and over and over and over. But if you do the math, you show that to do so in a way that produces supermassive black hole early enough in the history of the universe, as, as early as we find them, you need to start from black holes which cannot be 10 solar masses. They have to be bigger, hundreds, thousands, right? It's a, we, nobody really knows. And so if those black holes are out there, we should see them. Maybe we should see them, right? And then finally, the last uh, in, in interesting thing about this mass distribution is that I, I said he has a peak at 10 solar masses, roughly, and then even on the low end, it goes to lower and lower again. So we did not find black holes of three, two, five, right? Or, or, or very, very few. And so um, there are theories as for why this may be uh, expected due to stellar and binary evolution. Um, but to me, these, uh, thinking, about, uh, thinking about the mass, these are the most exciting uh, area of, uh, of intense understanding in the observing run that you mentioned starts in a couple of weeks because we're going to get uh, uh, between two and 400 binary black holes, depending on exactly the sensitivity of the detectors. So all of these things which right now are pretty uncertain, I mean, we are sure they are there, but we cannot really measure them to percent level yet. They will get much, much more uh, precisely measured. Maybe the last thing I will say, then I drink some some tea, is spins. So we can say something about the angular momentum of these black holes, because again, it's written on the gravitational waves. What we have found is that our black holes seems to be rotating around their own axis very slowly. And in, uh, in relativity, we typically measure this rotation speed with a number from zero to one. Zero means you are not rotating. One is like 100%. You're rotating as fast as you can. And our sources, our black hole seems to have this number to be around 20%, 15, 20%. So it's very low. And it's a bit puzzling because if you ask what is the same number for the black holes that astronomers have found with uh, telescopes, well, then you can get anything from zero to one. They found a few slow one, but also a few very fast one. Okay, and so there is also um, uh, already been and will be even more research in trying to understand what is this difference due to. Is this because our black holes are formed in a different way or have they evolved in a different way or what else is going on? 
Okay, that's great. Uh, but um, to me, it seems a bit unclear. Can you say with 100% confidence that the black holes that you have observed actually come from the collapse of stars? <laughs> um, well, I cannot say anything with 100% confidence, even when they're going to have for dinner tonight. So, you know, um, it is very likely um, because we understand uh, the life of stars and we know how they end their life, right? We have seen supernovae and so on and so forth. And so we now, it's very well established that black holes are left over from the life of massive star. The, um, so why I'm not saying I'm, I'm 100% sure? Because at least theoretically, there are alternatives. There are two main alternatives I can mention. One, it's so-called... Uh, primordial black holes. So those would be black holes which are not formed by the, a star when it dies, but they're basically formed shortly after the Big Bang just because, uh, you know, there is so much stuff that it collapses gravitationally in clumps, roughly speaking, right? And those have been theorized in the 70s, if I'm not wrong. Um, now, why it's less likely? Because you can do the math and you can show that these primordial black holes would by now mostly have already merged, okay? And so you should expect to find most of them early in the history of the universe, not today. The other possibility, which is not quite black holes, is that there may be some other object out there which look a bit like black holes, but they're not quite black holes. Those are typically called black hole mimickers because they mimic black holes. An example is like, boson stars or, or whatever, right? And those are, again, they if we find them, of course, if we can prove that's what we are seeing, it will be, you know, another Nobel Prize worthy discovery, right? Um, but we have no evidence that they exist in any other way, like electromagnetically or something like that. Theoretically, we could distinguish between black holes and other exotic objects by looking at how the gravitational wave evolves right after the collision, but unfortunately our uh, sensitivity is not good enough yet to resolve these minute features to a level of detail uh, which is uh, sufficient enough. So, you know, putting all together then, putting together especially what I know for sure can happen from astrophysics, the most likely outcome is that it is, uh, you know, uh, black holes that we're seeing. Right. So, okay, and then it sounds like what you uh, will learn by this, a little bit surprising then, find that the masses were a bit higher than what one would expect, maybe, is something more about the uh, life evolution of stars. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and talking about that, there was an event in 2017 which was very, very important in terms of learning more about uh, what happens with stars, not right. black holes. Can you describe what that was? Yes, absolutely. So that was uh, um, the collision of two neutron stars that we detected in, in uh, August of, 20, of 2017. Uh, I was also in Europe for the one. Somehow during the first few discoveries, I was always in Europe. Oh, we there's were, a correlation here. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you about some jokes that my colleague told me. You should travel more often. Just, yeah. just go, go <laughs> right at the beginning. Um, anyhow, so that was very different from the first one uh, because now we are talking of neutron stars, not black holes. And now what is the big difference is that neutron stars are made of stuff. 
right? While black holes are made of pure uh, gravity. So nothing can leave us bl as black holes, we know, uh, classically. Instead, if you take two neutron stars, which are two objects of the size, you know, of Cambridge, since we're here, and uh, but 1.5 times the mass of our sun, right? If you smash them together at half of the speed of light, you know, then fireworks are going to happen, right? Because the material uh, will start, uh, you know, being torn apart and flying around, right? And so one of the predictions that actually was made already prior to the discovery of, uh, of gravitational wave from the system is that if you smash two neutron stars together, they should produce a lot of light at various frequencies. One would be what we call gamma rays. So it's a very energetic flash of light that actually were discovered, uh, you know, many decades already ago with light, of course, with gamma ray detectors flying around the Earth. And it was long theorized that the source of these gamma rays were the collisions of two neutron stars. And in 2017, we finally showed that that is indeed the case. Then on top of that, uh, you have this, uh, this immediate flash of light, which is the gamma ray, but later you can have other types of light, which we call kilonovi, and that is basically really due to nuclear physics. Because as the name suggests, neutron stars are mainly made of neutrons, right? And so uh, after the collision, you have a lot of neutrons flying around and they can enrich the material around it, basically bringing it higher and higher in the nuclear table. And then eventually these things have to decay, decay like back pretty much. And that nuclear decays produce, of course, among other things, light, right? And because of the different time scale of different nuclear elements, this thing takes, you know, a few day, hours to days uh, uh, until it finally like kind of dies off. And then in even longer time scale, you have like radio emission. It's really a firework like everywhere. So it becomes like an intense nuclear laboratory far out there in space. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so that's one of the reasons why this discovery was particularly exciting, because of course, it brought together different scientific communities, right? It was people like me who are mainly interested in working on the gravitational wave side, but then you also people who work on nuclear physics or people who work on uh, on supernovae, right? Which is its own line of research. And, uh, and you know, it was at that time, I think this event was one of the events where most telescopes in the history of humanity were like pointed at the same spot of the sky, right? And um, and it generated, of course, a huge amount of re of research, right? Because again, it's a treasure trove. It's the first time. It was the first time in the history of of humanity that you saw light and gravitational waves from the same source, right? And so, for example, um, you know, among the things that were learned. Uh, from that particular uh, source alone, as I mentioned, was finally the proof that uh, binary neutron stars are the origin of at least some of the gamma ray bursts, maybe all of them, uh, but also that they can produce these nuclear, uh, you know, processes called kilonovi, which are, you know, were suggested and now we believe are actually the way in which you can produce most of the heavy metals in the universe, like, you know, gold and, and, and platinum and all the lower part of the periodic table through this like nuclear uh, enrichment, right? And previously people believe you would do that in supernova, during the supernova explosion, but it turns out it's actually much more efficient to do that when it's going to start binaries. And uh, uh, on top of that, we could also try to understand with this source a bit better 
how neutron stars are, you know, um, what are they made of inside? Because we say neutron stars, okay, and that it's roughly true. We as, uh, roughly true. We expect them to be mostly made of neutrons, but nobody really knows because the truth is that the density reached inside neutron stars is so high that A, we don't quite know how matter behaves in those regimes, and B, we cannot reproduce those regimes in a laboratory in a dirt. We just don't have you know, enough energy to, to produce those conditions, right? So it's really a nuclear laboratory out in space. And, um, and so one of the things that we don't know then, it's exactly the content, if you go all the way to the core of a neutron star, and also we don't know, it seems very silly, how easy it is to squeeze a neutron star. Like we don't know if they're very like soft, or if they're very, very spherical, you're never gonna be able to squeeze them. And uh, gravitational waves can tell us that, because if you have two neutron stars, it's just gravity, each of them is gonna pull the other, Right, and so if you are very, very easy to uh, to squeeze, then instead of a of a sphere, they will become like you know uh, oblate baseball balloons, right? And gravitational waves would tell us that. And similarly, light would also tell us something about that because if it's very, very easy to break a neutron star, then you get a different amount of light from it, right? That if it's very, very hard instead. Because if it's very hard, maybe we'll all fall in the black hole that forms after the collision instead of being like around. And so um, then this discovery allowed us to put some uh, constraints on, you know, technically it's called the equation of state of neutron star, which is really what tells us how easy it is to, uh, you know, how soft neutron stars are. Uh, it's just an amazing story. <laughs> uh, so this is called multi-messenger astronomy. I mean, this was really, is it correct to say it was the birth of multi-messenger astronomy? It depends or on how you count, right? Because uh, I think, formally speaking, you uh, you can also have, you know, light and neutrinos, and neutrinos are not light, so that also could be, uh, you know, mm. uh, depending on who you talk to, multi-messenger astronomy. It's certainly the first one with light and gravitational waves. Yeah, so I really hope if some... Uh, physics or astronomy students listen to this, that they hear like what an exciting field that is to combine gravitational wave measurements with these electromagnetic measurements from these colliding neutron stars. And talking about that, about uh, what we can learn from the future, we're going to wrap up uh, soon. So you said we have um, LIGO now, we have uh, Virgo, Virgo, Carga, and they are upgraded. So, but looking uh, on the timeline of maybe one or two or even three decades when when your when your listeners will be professors and they want to know what they what they should do in the future <laughs> exactly yeah, yes, yes absolutely <laughs> um, uh, right so actually before i i do that uh, just for completeness um, i i should also say that one of the things that we have done with the, the neutron star which i think is, is very exciting is to measure the expansion rate of the universe, like the, the Hubble constant. Okay, I don't know how much time we have. I'm happy to go back to this later if you want. Um, right, so uh, let's see. So we detected the first gravitational wave in 2015. Since we have been operating in a regime where we have collected data, say for a few months or a year, and then the detectors were uh, you know, turned off and our friends that, 
work with the instruments would then use the following months or year to improve some of the things and then we restart with a sensitivity which is better right than before and, um, and so that's the way we are operating even now we are in the break between two observing runs. the last one ended in 2020 a bit earlier because of covid and uh, after we were supposed to restart earlier than now, but you know, after COVID, it was harder to do anything like even just getting the the parts, the hardware that you need, right? Mm. So COVID also took a toll on the gravitational I, I, wave community. Uh, ab yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely. Um, of course, you know, compared with everything else bad that happened, it's, it's a small thing, but we we did finish a few uh, a few months earlier because of COVID and we restarted much later because of, of COVID. Right, so uh, now then you can ask me, okay, great, Salvo. Uh, so I can keep doing this and LIGO and Virgo will get better and better, right? And so where does this end? Well, actually it doesn't end very far in the future because it turns out that at some point, no matter how smart you are, how much you improve uh, the polish, uh, polishing of your mirrors or the power of your laser, eventually you're just going to be limited by the fact that LIGO is four kilometers in size and Virgo is three kilometers in size, right? And a lot of our uh, noise sources uh, are just simply dependent on the length. So the longer something it is, a detector is, the better. Okay, and so what is going to happen in the next few years, say five years, is that our sensitivity will get better and better because we're going to increase the power and you know and change a few things, use uh, quantum squeezing more efficiently, and so on and so forth. And so that will bring us from where we are uh, now, or in a couple of weeks, which would be a sensitivity such that we should get a new binary black hole merger every you know two or three days, something like that, and, uh, you know, a neutron star every couple of, couple of weeks or something like this. Eventually, say in 2025 or six, once we uh, reach our design sensitivity, those things will get maybe a factor of two better. So we'll get a black hole every day, you know, and it starts every few days, right? Black hole detection every day. I know, right? It sounds we, amazing. <laughs> we, we went in like seven years from Nobel Prize party, first time ever to, you know, boring, another black hole. <laughs> just, <laughs> just like, insane, just another black hole. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty, pretty. Now it's every day. Yeah. It's pretty crazy, right? Yeah. And, um, and so... Um, Eventually, though, we will reach a, a ceiling, right? We just cannot improve anything uh, that will make a big difference, right? And now you may tell me, okay, Salvo, well, that's fine. You know, if you have a black hole every day and it's going to start every couple of days, still, still seems pretty good. Like, so what, why don't we just, is the plan to just keep using LIGO and Virgo forever? And the answer is no for uh, a few reasons, right? So one of them is that um, if I keep running LIGO and Virgo as good and Kagra as good as I can be, they will detect so a black hole every few days, but most of the signals will be very weak, okay? They will not be super loud. And one reason why that's a bit uh, suboptimal is that one of the things we want to do with gravitational waves is to actually be ungrateful to Einstein and check whether Einstein was right and general relativity actually works. Because there are good reasons uh, based on uh, quantum field theory and string theory to believe that maybe general relativity it's an approximation to something else right and uh, 
if general relativity breaks down, the place where it could break down is in a region where gravity is very extreme. And what is more extreme than two black holes moving at the speed of light, right? And so one of the things that we are already doing, of course, but now it's very challenging because our signals are very weak, is to test whether the gravitational wave we see look exactly like Einstein predicted or whether there is something going on there, right? And in order for you to do so, if, you know, convincingly, of course, you need something that is very clear, that really stands out of the data, and then you can check does that look like Einstein told me it should look like. If it's very marginal, if it's very noisy, it's much harder, right? And so with the, the current generation of detectors, that's going to be very challenging. The other important uh, limitation is that if you now think about where uh, or when our sources were generated, they are pretty far, like for human uh, perception of distances, you know, a billion uh, light years, light years away, right? So a billion years ago. But in cosmological scale, they are in our backyard, really, right? Mm. And so, so they are not. They're still not in our galaxy. It's in other galaxies, but they are still kind of local. Yeah. So they are still like in a galaxy far, far away, right? <laughs> to quote, you know, to quote the movies. But still, uh, relatively uh, speaking they are nearby, right? Uh, even once LIGO gets as, and Virgo as good as they can, uh, an, a, a binary black hole like of 10 and 10 solar masses, which is roughly what I told you this maximum of the masses is, we would only be able to see that to a redshift of one, which maybe doesn't mean a lot to many of your uh, listeners, but is uh, pretty uh, nearby. To give you an idea, uh, you know, there is a lot of exciting science that can happen farther away. And I'll give you three concrete examples, right? The stars that we see here in our galaxies or a redshift, this quantity dimension of one, they are what astronomers call the population one stars, which are the most recently formed stars in the universe, right? But our understanding of the evolution of the universe tell us that if we go back in time, which means farther away from Earth, because cosmology is very puzzling, right, and confusing, there should be earlier generation of stars, right, that now don't exist anymore because they became supernovae, right? But if I look far enough in time, I should see them. Very confusingly, they're called population three, even though they're the first. Okay. Astronomers. Astronomers, exactly, right? <laughs> and now, we have never seen one of these population three stars with uh, with light. Uh, James Webb Telescope may maybe find evidence for them, but they're not going to see one of them. They're just too far. They may just do an average something, right? But if those um, gen uh, first generation of stars leave behind black holes in binary, then gravitational wave would see them, right? Unfortunately, if you go to our friends that do this simulation and ask them, okay, how far are these? They are much, much farther than LIGO and Virgo would ever be able to see them, right? I told you our, we can see things as far as redshift of one. This thing would be a redshift of 12 when the universe was only a few hundred million years old, okay, as opposed to 13 billion years, right? And uh, so that's one problem. 
the other thing is that if you go even farther from us, so earlier in the history of the universe, we mentioned this primordial black hole that may have been born right after the Big Bang. And I mentioned that then you would expect to find more of them the closer to the Big Bang you get. And LIGO and Virgo will never be able to see that far in the current facility, right? And so there are, of course, a gazillions of other reasons. But again, I want to impress the, the ideas that just running what we have now longer, it will give us more of more sources, but a bit more of the same. It will not open this different avenue to like the distance, uh, you know, direction. And so uh, because the limit is really the facility, then if you want to go past where we are or where we will be in 20, late in this decade, you need to build something new. And so what we are uh, thinking about right now, uh, both in Europe and in the US, is to build uh, still interferometers, but bigger. So here in the US, we are working on a concept called the Cosmic Explorer, which is basically a scaled up version of LIGO. Instead of being 40, uh, four kilometers, will be 40 kilometers, still L. And in Europe, they are also considering the option of uh, building something which is triangular in shape for the reasons that I'm happy to talk about, but they're related to polarization information and also to go underground because in Europe it's much harder to find, uh, you know, 10 kilometers of free space uh, on, on, on the surface because it's just much more densely uh, populated. And now um, the rather, in my mind, uh, insane thing about this is that these detectors would be uh, the second generation of gravitational waves, right? The detectors, uh, sorry, sorry, the third, because initial lag and Virgo in the early 2000s were the first, we are in the second. This will be the third generation. And uh, if everything goes well with funding, we are thinking uh, about the second part of the 2030s for operation. So it's, it's not, you know, forever away, it's 10 years in the future. And the rather, to me, a really crazy thing is that we would go from only one generation of detectors from seeing the first gravitational wave ever in, in the history of humanity to see basically all of the mergers of black holes everywhere in the universe. So to me, this is like if the person after Galileo built James Webb. Like, it's right. literally, yeah. right? <laughs> That's a good example. I mean, I, I can't wrap my head around this because it's even... To me, it feels like even like science fiction to say that what LIGO already has detected are black holes in other galaxies, nearby galaxies relatively, but still. Uh, black holes in other galaxies merging, emitting gravitational waves that are detected on Earth. And now you're saying that in the 30s, end of the 30s, we can hopefully see all the gravitational waves emitted by the collision of black holes. Absolutely. I, think it's, I mean, it doesn't, it sounds... I know. The, <laughs> the way I like to put it is that with this next generation, we will basically run out of universe because like <laughs> we're going to see, you know, because if you can see uh, these objects far enough that there are not even stars anymore, then, you know, I mean, you still may find surprises. Of course, that would be incredibly surprising, right? Like exciting. If you start... And even actually today's, right, is one of the things that we hope to do is to one day find something in the signal and you just don't know what where, where it comes from, right? What generated it, 
right? Uh, the history of astronomy on the electromagnetic side, of course, has been full of surprises of sources that nobody had imagined before, right? So, of course, we we hope and expect the same thing to happen in gravitational waves. But even just with our like you know vanilla uh, binaries, we will be able to see them in in the 2030s. Uh, you know, before from before when there were stars in the universe, which is mm. really like. It is really something, right? It's it's very hard to, you know, really also think about the time scale, right? Because it's like ten years in the future. This goes really, really fast. I, I'm in lack of words here. <laughs> I don't know what to ask. <laughs> well, it's, it feels like science fiction, but the, I mean, it's only in ten, fifteen years. Oh, yeah. fifteen years, maybe there somewhere. So yeah. it's still very, very soon that uh, we will be able to see this. So. You mentioned uh, cosmology now. We're talking about the entire universe. So I think we're going to do like this. We talked about so many things. So for the listener, they might be there's so much to wrap their head around. So we're going to end now. With, because you said also that we can use these merges to do cosmology even, to learn something about the fundamental properties of the universe. So let's let's finish on that one. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And wrap it up. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the, the idea, it's very simple, right? Um, Astronomers have shown that the, the universe is, uh, is um, expanding and is even expanding in an accelerated fashion, so faster and faster, whatever that means in cosmology, which is not obvious. Now, how is that uh, done? To show that something is uh, uh, f- receding from the Earth, okay, you need to measure uh, two main quantities, its position and its velocity, right? And... Uh, if you do things carefully, what you realize it boils down to, it's for a given, say, galaxy far away to measure its distance from us and a quantity that we call the redshift, which is related to the velocity that object has. And uh, uh, the way astronomers have historically measured the redshift, it's actually very, very um, uh, straightforward and very well understood. The method relies on the fact that Lights shine far away from us uh, because they are burning hydrogen, right? And then helium and then whatever. And nuclear physics tells us exactly what properties the light that is emitted in this situation should have, in particular, the frequency of that light. Now, it turns out that if you take a source of light or a, a, a horn of an ambulance, right? the frequency that the waves are carrying away from the source will change if the source is moving relative to you, right? That's why police cars sounds different when they come and when they leave, right? And the same is true for stars. So if you know what the light frequency should have been, and you see that it's different when you measure with your telescope, that tells you how how fast that galaxy is going away from you. Great. And that's very easy because we get light from stars all the time. But how do we get the distance? That is the problem because light does not convey any information about the distance of a source. So the way astronomers have measured distances historically uh, for the purpose of cosmology has been very, very uh, challenging and complicated. And it relies on a multi-step process, which is called the cosmic distance ladder, because it's really in steps, where first you try to measure very well the distance of some stars in our galaxies. 
And those are variable stars, pretty much. And then from that, uh, you try to find now one of these galaxies in another galaxy far away and relates uh, the variation of its uh, brightness with the distance. And you do this over and over, you use supernovae, it works. And that's how uh, they measure the expansion of the universe, Nobel Prizes, and so on and so forth. Why do gravitational waves help on, with this? They help because unlike light, which tells you everything you need to know about the redshift, but nothing you need to know about the uh, distance, gravitational waves are exactly the opposite. They don't contain any information about the redshift in, in a way that you can extract, but they are simply related to the distance. The gravitational wave uh, signal goes like one over the distance. So the farther away, the, the, the smaller it is. And so wouldn't it be great then if there were sources that emit both light and gravitational waves? Because then the gravitational waves would tell you the distance. The light would give you the redshift without you know any extra thing. You're done. Mm, right? Complementary information. And that's exactly yeah. what happened in, 20, in 2017. And one of the reasons why this neutron star binary was exciting, because astronomers, our friend astronomers, did find the, the light from the galaxy that uh, was the host of these uh, mergers. And so from the light, they got the redshift, right? Gravitational waves told us that that object was a roughly 40 uh, million parsec away from us, right? And from that information, we got the measurements of the uh, Hubble constant, which is the local expansion rate of the universe. Uh, for the first time, in a way that was nearly entirely independent from any of this cosmic distance ladder. And now the uh, suboptimal thing is that the, the measurement was not great in terms of like, uncertainty, it was pretty uncertain, right? It's a first. It was the first, right? Yeah. But again, the beautiful part of that is not, at least now, the fact that it's very precise because it's not, but it's really the fact that it's independent from the other ways of doing uh, this measurement. And I want to stress this because it may not be obvious to many of your, of your listeners is that right now we have two main ways of measuring this expansion parameter for the universe locally, and they disagree strongly, right? In fact, whole conferences in the last few years have been organized with titles like crisis in cosmology, you know? And so it would be great to have a third way which does not share this potential systematic uh, errors or cosmic distance ladder or whatever to arbitrate this tension. And that's what, at least potentially, we're not there yet, but in the next few years, gravitational waves can do for us. So, okay, so gravitational waves can help astronomers solve the Hubble tension. Then. Pretty much. Okay, that's amazing. And how the, the measured value that you got, how did that fare compared to the other? Well, right now, our uncertainty are, let me put it this way, our uncertainty are big enough that everyone still likes us because we still agree with everyone, right? <laughs> like, we just spun uh, everything, right? Because our uncertainty are like, 13, 1, 3%, and the uncertainty from these other measurements are like percent level. So like our error bars covers everything, right? That's why I said we're not there yet at the level to the side. Um, and so, you know, I cannot tell you we agree more with one side versus the other is a bit too, too early. It will, take, uh, um, it will take a few years, not decades. Again, it will take just a few years. It's fantastic. So to summarize, I mean, it sounds like <laughs> gravitational wave research from colliding black holes and neutron stars, it can help you analyze Einstein's uh, theory, if that is right or wrong, uh, when you go to very strong uh, gravity regimes. 
It can help you understand the formation of stars and how they eventually die. It can help you solve the Hubble tension problem. Uh, it can do more for us. It's quite a uh, lot. <laughs> we, we, have, we have not talked about it, and you know, I don't want to uh, you know uh, drag this forever. But uh, it turns out that gravitational waves can also be used to um, find dark matter in uh, in some uh, in some cases uh, for various reasons. Uh, so, you know, at various level of you know exotic you know you have uh, people have proposed um, um, situation in which uh, neutron stars will uh, after some time that they're born will start to create that we start we start to form dark matter cores at their center and then of course if they do this uh, like equational state i mentioned earlier how squishy they are will be different than if they're actually just made of normal matter another theory that i, I love because it's beautiful is that um, if you if dark matter is light enough, then you can show that dark matter particles will form clouds around black holes. The same way like electrons form clouds around the proton and, and the nucleus, right? And so these clouds of, of dark matter, which are called axions, very light dark matter, do uh, for the uh, to the black hole is that they suck energy from the black hole okay and they emit their own gravitational waves like now is the dark matter emits gravitational waves and unlike uh, the binaries which last you know is a gravitational wave that lasts a few seconds we're not talking necessarily about duration but these black holes are a few seconds neutron stars are a couple of minutes these uh, clouds could emit gravitational waves that last for years and years right and so you know and i'm, I'm forgetting i'm sure hundreds of other things we can find a gravitational wave from a supernova right if we have an explosion in the galaxy of a supernovae that will emit gravitational waves. And of course it would be incredibly exciting. And we can also find gravitational wave from uh, pulsars, right? Um, you know, pulsars are rapidly ro rotating neutron stars. They're not in a binary with necessarily. And it turns out that if a pulsar is not perfectly spherical, but has a small bump somewhere, then as it rotates very quickly, it does emits gravitational wave at the same frequency pretty much, always it's monochromatic. We're looking for all of these things. We have not found them so far. So far we have shown that pulsars are really, really spherical. And like, you know, and if you have a mountain on a pulsar, it cannot be more than a millimeter or so in size, right? <laughs> but we're well, looking for these things. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, so I think it's quite clear that the message got across to, uh, as I said before, if you have young students looking to a field to study and there's exactly. a lot of exciting things going on and, and most importantly, there's a lot of data coming in. Absolutely. In coming yeah. years. So we're going to wrap up there. Uh, Salvatore, thank you so much thank for you talking for about me. this. And good luck now with the future observation thank run. <laughs> thank you.